everyone. Welcome to the European Talks, a podcast by the European Policy Center, a Belgrade-based independent think tank. My name is Anna Maric and I will be your host today. Our guest today is Nenad Šebek. Mr. Šebek has worked as a journalist for more than 25 years. He began his journalistic career at Radio Belgrade and has worked as BBC correspondent for 18 years in London, Zagreb, Belgrade and Moscow, covering the Balkan region during the erratic 1990s. He was also director of Center for Democracy and Reconciliation in Southeast Europe, as well as the spokesperson of the Regional Cooperation Council. Also, he was director of the Belgrade office of the Heinrich Bell Foundation. Mr. Šebek, welcome to the podcast. Given your impressive uh, biography, uh, we can start our conversation on the topic of uh, regional cooperation in the Western Balkans, or the lack of it. Uh, how do you assess the current state of play in this regard? The state of regional relations is very bad, um, to, to put it mildly. Uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, I would grade it at somewhere between 3 and 4, and it should be between 8 and 10, because regional cooperation is a f- fantastic opportunity uh, for whichever region we are talking about. If you look at the example of, for example, the Visegrad countries as they were preparing themselves for the EU accession, they worked together as a group. So they were able to even exert pressure upon the European Commission, the European Union, which in no way can we from the Western Balkans do. Uh, and they have remained a pressure club right up until this very day. Today, not as productively as they mm. used to, but nevertheless, they cooperate. If you look at the Scandinavian countries 30, 40 years ago, they had one single uh, regional airline because it was more, uh, it made more sense to have one airline rather than three. In the Western Balkans, we have five, six, seven region, country-based airlines, uh, none of which are profitable, and we have lousy connections between our capital cities. If we had one regional airline, it could be profitable and it would connect people better. And that's just one single example of how regional cooperation can make the life of the people in that region better. Because we're destined uh, to sort of live next to one another, preferably with one another, not just next one to one to another. Uh, and uh, regional cooperation is an in- inevitability unless, you know, we simply want to continue as we are and where we are and what we are. We're poor, we're not influential, we don't have uh, much of a say in either what happens in our region, least at all, in the rest of the world. And uh, as uh, all opinion polls in the region suggest, economic issues are the greatest concern of our citizens. But unlike in the uh, regions and the examples you're citing, our region has an additional uh, burden of the past, of the problematic past. To what extent do you think that uh, uh, makes the effective regional cooperation more difficult? It does make it more difficult. There's no question uh, about that. It is a huge burden which we all have on our shoulders. We have fought wars between ourselves and it is more difficult to overcome such a situation and to achieve regional cooperation than it is elsewhere. But let us, for example, look at, um, you know, we've been fighting wars here not for centuries, as the legend goes. We've been fighting wars here in the 20th century, in the second half of the 20th century and in the 1990s. Look at uh, Great Britain and France. Or no, no, let us look at France and Germany. France and Germany have a history of seven, eight hundred years of warfare between them. And yet what happened so shortly after the Second World War, which was a terribly bitter one, in which the Germans did great harm to the French and vice versa later when Germany was defeated. We have already in the early 1960s, we have Konrad Adenauer and Charles de Gaulle signing Mm -hmm. um, agreements which 
grounded uh, the European Union. They started the uh, Franco-German Youth Exchange Program, which is probably one of the greatest reconciliation projects in the world. This was happening just, you know, let me see, 63, uh, 13 and 5, 18 years after the war. Here, it's 2019. We are 20 years after the last of the wars, the, 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 the Kosovo War. And to this very day, we have a huge burden between Croatia and Serbia, between, between the three sides in Bosnia itself, between Bosnia and the other neighbors, between uh, Serbs and Albanians. It's ridiculous because, you know, uh, one cannot forget the past, but one should not get stuck in the past. We need to move forward and we have still not found right ways to do so. Uh, do you think that maybe the lack of uh, democratic legacy and the fact that our region has not had a strong uh, traditional uh, democratic uh, uh, demo- heritage? Yeah, heritage, it's yes. it's uh, it- it's logical. Yes, mm-hmm. your question is 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 spot on. Uh, none of our countries has any democratic past. We uh, used to be feudal kingdoms, which went straight into autocracy or into fascism, uh, then into communism. So we do not have the right kind of uh, of, of a democratic sort of heritage. Uh, France did have democracy, not that much. Uh, mm-hmm. Germany did as well. Again, not that much, but they had something to build upon. Here, we also suffered from the fact that from communism, we went straight into the transition, which is still going on. And the word transition, I always say, is a euphemism for robber capitalism, Mm -hmm. bandit capitalism, which is basically when some people are becoming tremendously rich and most of the people are becoming very, very poor. Um, So, and this transition period is somehow associated with democracy. So the word democracy in our part of the world does not necessarily have a positive connotation. There's even a joke in Serbia uh, and, and other countries as well, I guess, you know, when will this democracy pass so that I can finally start living again like a human being? Uh, and uh, uh, most commonly, we uh, we think that the major push for reforms for democratic transition goes from the pressure of the international community of the EU and so on. In the recent years, it has been uh, shown that this is not really the case and that we should maybe rely instead on the internal forces, on the civil society of our region of media on the domestic actors. What is your view on that? What is the role of civil society in uh, consolidation of democracies in the region? Well, the microcosm is always a mirror image of the microcosm. Uh, If you're married and you have marital problems between you and your wife, of course, it is very good to go and see a psychotherapist, to go and see a marriage counselor and to get some advice. But unless you and your wife are capable Mm -hmm. of sorting things out between yourselves, there is no amount of external help which can do the job for you. Uh, It is never good to rely on somebody else to do what is essentially your task. Reconciliation and regional cooperation are our tasks. Uh, Of course, the major force, you're absolutely right, has been the European Commission and the European Union, and they've been pushing us towards this. After all, they founded initially the Stability Pact, now the Regional Cooperation Council, and they're funding a a plethora of, of, of regional initiatives, which are all supposed to help. But unless we join that process honestly, truly, with a desire to actually make a difference, that's not happening. Now, you asked about the role of the civil society. The civil society, like the media, is in developed democracies a kind of a watchdog, a kind of, uh, you know, and it's supposed to bark when things are not good. Uh, The civil society should not try and take over and be the ultimate judge of everything, but it should be a watchdog, especially in underdeveloped democracies. I would say we are all just budding democracies uh, in the region. So the civil society has a great role to play. 
there's no question about that. However, on the one hand, uh, the civil society has the problem that the regional governments consider it a nuisance. You know, it's like mm-hmm. the, the, a mosquito which is buzzing around you and which will bite you and you're annoyed and you try and find a spray to sort of kill that mosquito. Um, and then on the other hand, you have the external factors, for example, the European Union, but also the United States, for example, which are willing to help and have been funding the mm-hmm. civil society for, for a long time but uh, who also cannot do the actual job which the civil society has to do on its own. It's mm-hmm. great to have this funding and to have this kind of support, uh, not just financial, but also political support, political muscle that's absolutely necessary at times. Uh, but uh, so uh, to go back to the great mm-hmm. system, uh, the potential role of the civil society would be 10 out of 10. But the role mm-hmm. that the civil society has today, I would grade it as somewhere between 5 out of 10. Five out of ten. And do you see any progress uh, in uh, compared to, for example, the 1990s? Do you see then any uh, gradual improvement on CSO's impact on uh, both towards the policymakers and towards the public and the citizens? There is both both progress and there is regress as well. Mm-hmm. There are, we, we are paradoxically witnessing both one and the other. First of all, uh, the civil societies have been under great financial pressure because the large of, uh, amounts of money which have been coming from abroad in the 1990s during the wars have simply disappeared. There is much less funding today than it was. Uh, your organization, I'm pretty sure, knows and, and suffers the same fate as the many others. So the number of the civil society organizations has come down. Their influence, their voice is louder, it can be heard, but not necessarily always in the right places and not always necessarily in the right kind of a way. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, even the role of some external factors like the European Union is sometimes not really completely honest. Mm -hmm. Because as Florian Bieber from Graz uh, mentioned, he he spoke, he, he coined the phrase stabilitocracies i.e. countries which have a stable government, they're not bothering anybody else, they're not attacking anybody else, but they're far from being democratic countries. It would appear as if the European Union and and even the United States over the last 10 years have favored stabilitocracies instead of genuine democracies. Mm -hmm. And they have been pushing the civil society to cooperate a bit more with these basically autocratic regimes mm-hmm. uh, than the civil society would like to. So it's it's a very rough sea and swimming in this rough sea is not easy at all. Yes, yeah, so the position of the CSO sector today is very difficult. And as someone also demonstrated in the research, uh, uh, the EU conditionality unintentionally contributed to uh, uh, entrenching state capture mechanisms in absolutely. the region. Absolutely, absolutely uh, so. And the public perception of the CSO sector, the civil society, is quite negative. Um, what? Yes, fifth column, traitors, uh, big yes. traitors of your country, etc., etc. The public perception of the civil society is by and large negative in the whole of the Western Balkans, unfortunately. And what do you think the civil society, as uh, heterogenic as it is, can do to improve its public image and, uh, in a way, find trust in the citizens? Start working on the microcosm and then uh, keep the fingers crossed that it will work in the macrocosm as well. In other words, since there is no platform which unites the civil society, even in the individual countries, least alone on a regional level, uh, I can just say that it would be very, very good if each and every civil society organization, A, cleaned up its own act, Because let's be honest, in the 90s and even after, Mm -hmm. there was also a lot of uh, misappropriation of funds. There were a lot of NGOs which existed for the sake of existing, 
uh, i.e. so they would have an executive director, a chauffeur, a secretary, uh, but we're not really doing any, any meaningful, meaningful job. So we need to clean up our own act, number one. Number two, we uh, need to remember that these are not the same times as the 1990s. So we have to, it, it is always better to try and work with the government. Uh, these governments are autocratic, as I mentioned, so it is not always easy. In this cooperation, one must never cross the red line. So one needs to define the red lines, make sure that you never cross them, that you do not trample upon your own principles, as unfortunately Brussels has done on many an occasion uh, in the Western Balkans. An additional burden to the work of the CSOs is the fact that the media is quite negatively reporting on the work of the CSOs. Uh, can we now just talk a bit more about the media and role of the media in democratization of our region? How do you assess the state of the uh, media and of the journalists nowadays and how to, to get how to out? improve it? Exactly. Uh, the media, like the civil society in a well-developed democracy, are one of the two most important watchdogs. Mm -hmm. The main one should be the parliament and the opposition, etc., mm -hmm. etc. Et but the two main independent watchdogs uh, are meant to be the civil society and the media. Unfortunately, the media globally have changed. Mm -hmm. the, the fact that the media have changed the worse in our part of the world does not mean that it's significantly better elsewhere. Um, even some major, major... Uh, big media names are not what they used to be. So we are witnessing a downgrading, a dumbing down of the media globally. But let's focus on the Western Balkans. This is where we live. This is where we work. This is where we're to try to make things better. Things have never been worse. Um, absolutely never. Financially, the media have been squeezed. Uh, if you look at basically, if you look at any of the reports, analysis about the state of the freedom of the media, and you have several annual reports which come out. One is by Reporters Without Borders. Um, there's the Index on Censorship. There are a number of, uh, number of studies which were done every year. You will simply see uh, that the situation in every one of our countries, no matter how different we are, is actually exactly the same when it comes to the media. There is no independent uh, public broadcaster. Even though they're called public broadcasters, they're completely reliant on funding on the government. So they're basically government-run public broadcasters, which is anything but independent. If one looks at, for example, uh, the way that the privatization of the small media were done in, let's say, for example, Serbia, uh, it was done at the request of the European Commission. The European Commission demanded that the state pull out. However, the privatization process was deeply flawed because uh, public, smaller public broadcasters were sold to owners who until yesterday had no connection whatsoever to the media. They were in some cases uh, sold to companies which were formed even after the tender was uh, was publicized. So uh, we ended up with uh, small, formerly public media uh, organizations, TV or radio stations, which are completely controlled by the ruling party. Uh, and as for the genuinely independent private media, uh, what has happened in the region is that the governments, i.e. the ruling parties, because in each and every one of our countries we have a ruling party, uh, are simply pressuring them financially in a way that they cannot survive on the market. If, again, let's, let me use the example of Serbia, because this is where I live at the moment and I know the media scene best. Uh, you've got a, a handful, you've got one daily newspaper, which is generally independent, two and a half weekly newspapers, um, and there's no, no private television station, which is truly independent. And they're all working under great financial pressure because the regime is simply not allowing advertisers to advertise on, on, on these media, i.e. to give them income. So the media in the region, uh, I would say, are possibly even worse than they were in the, in the bad old 90s. Uh, 
um, we still see a lot of hate speech, uh, not just against whoever the other is, whether the others are LGBT, uh, whether the others are the other nation or neighboring nation or any kind of a minority or something like that. There's a hell of a lot of hate speech and that is very, very bad because this influences the whole climate. And this also, to go back to your question, uh, is the civil society, does the civil society have a bad name because of the, the role of the media? Mm -hmm. Yes, because for, for the tabloid media, uh, you know, they're the enemy. And do you see any light at the end of this tunnel? Uh, I'm an eternal optimist, Sena. I always see the glasses half full rather than half empty. And I refuse to believe that my generation has completely ruined the lives of your generation. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping that maybe between ourselves, between those of us from my generation who wants to make things, who wants to make, make things better, and between those of you uh, of your generation who has the courage, the strength, and the stamina um, to, to sort of move our countries forward, that we can make a change. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to happen overnight. Um, but yes, I believe that things will get better. I do see a light at the end of the tunnel, but it's nowhere near. What I fear mm -hmm. is that in the meantime, a lot of your generation will simply emigrate. The one thing which is unique for the whole region is that three quarters of the young people in every one of our countries has the ambition of graduating and then leaving the region. That are quite bleak prospects. And this is something which we have been facing among our friends and communities. That's true. Uh, I wanted to end our conversation with a question on uh, the prospects of our European uh, uh, integration and EU membership. Uh, one of the major issues might be exactly the fact that even before we entered the EU, our populations might already might be there. <laughs> already be there, exactly. Uh, what is your view on uh, uh, the prospects and perspectives of uh, EU integration well, process of the Balkans? On my pessimistic days, I, I, I have like a déjà vu, and, and, and I have a feeling that they are pretending that they want us in, and we are pretending as if we want to be member states. That's on my pessimistic days. Luckily, those pessimistic days are few and far between. The accession process has gone on way too far. There is not only enlargement fatigue. There are the internal factors from the EU itself. Brexit is a major game changer, first of all, and uh, also the, the attitude of a number of countries like France, who also, first of all, want to see deeper European integration before any expansion. That's one thing. But then on the other side, we have not done our job. We have not achieved the right kind of results, either economically or democratically when it comes to sort of building institutions. The EU is about institutions, you know. EU membership is not just about adopting laws, it is about implementing laws. It is not about um, proclaiming a new democratic tradition and introducing democratic institutions. It's about respecting them. It is about respecting the rules of this club where we want to become a member state. Certainly, I don't believe in 2025 as a realistic date for either Montenegro or Serbia, not to mention the other countries. Uh, but I do very strongly believe in a continuation of the process because the further we go along that route, the better our countries become. But it is going to be a long and difficult journey still. Mr. Shabek, thank you very much for this conversation. You're welcome.